0: As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
1: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state
2: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keene, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand, on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App.
3: Katrina Dudley joins us now, portfolio manager at Franklin Mutual Series. <coughs> Katrina, can we start there? The difference in the inflation that the Eurozone is experiencing right now and that we are home in the United States. Is there a big difference from your perspective?
4: Um, We need to think about what's generating the inflation in the Eurozone region and what has been generating it. And um, the, the war in Ukraine has really not come to light for such a long period of time. But that's really what is reflected in those European inflation numbers. It's the fact that someone cut off the gas supply and we needed to replace that gas. And that is the inflation that people are dealing with. But we keep talking about it. And I think it's so important. It's the reaction of the governments that we have been very, very positive upon in terms of that incremental help that they're providing to their citizens. And I think that that is where there's that disconnect, is that the population is actually quite happy because they're getting support and they're getting help. So they're not protesting in the streets.
2: What's fascinating to me, and this came up at the meetings of the IMF, and we have Lagarde. John, when is Lagarde? Like in an hour? 8.45. Oh, so like so 20, 20, 20, 20 minutes. minutes
4: yeah. yeah, it's going to be
2: here in, in a brief. She's speaking a different language to a different culture and fabric. And I wonder, within all your study, Bond University, all the work you've done in equities, are we at a point where we can say they've gone beyond urosclerosis and that they have a financial structure more like us, more Anglo-Saxon, if you will, than what we knew when we were studying this?
4: Um, it's transitioning. I think that the bond market in the Eurozone is still not as robust as the bond market that we mm-hmm. hear, see in the United States. And what does that mean is that you know, companies don't go into bankruptcy that is driven by the bondholders and the breaching of those covenants because the debt is held in the right. banks. And the banks tend to be wanting to work with their customers on a longer period of time. So even though you've had that transition, it's not been you know, a, a really noticeable one. But look, the data dependent. I mean, who does not want to hear the fact that the people running the ECB are looking at the data and they're being informed by the data and they're saying that, you know, the core inflation number is still high. It's at 5.6 percent on a core basis. That's significantly above two. Um, You know, we're not talking the difference between two and three. We're talking, you know, multiple points higher. And they need to, I think forcefully was the word, but they need to really push that number down.
5: So we haven't stated it yet, but data dependency is is a key phrase on the show where you're going to have an alarm go off, and then we'll say, well, what exactly do you mean by that, right? And it means something different for everybody. For right now, the Federal Reserve it means the senior loan officer survey, and perhaps what happens uh, with respect to regional banks in Europe. Is it just core inflation? Is that the preeminent data dependency that we're looking at? I
4: think that they're looking at a multiple of factors. They're looking at what's happening in spreads in the periphery, and we saw that about a year ago where you saw that blowout and spreads in Italy and the ECB reacted. So that's one area of data they're looking at. They are looking at inflation. They're also looking at Eurozone in your employment metrics because one of the mechanisms for your know, inflation, it needs to be wage adjust adjustment because you know, people need to get that to be able to cope with it. And so they're looking at whether or not those higher wages are causing employees to be laid off. So there's a lot of different factors they're looking at.
3: Katrina, thank you. Thank for you. For jumping on the, into the studio and catching up with us. Thank you. Katrina Dudley there, Franklin Mutual, on the latest CCB Decision.
2: Right now, Stephen Rusciuto joins us. Steve Rusciuto is chief economist at Mizuho, And yes, it is on the American economy. But Stephen, I've got to start with the EU here and the challenges that uh, Madame Lagarde faces The idea here is the animal spirit of the United States. Our technical superiority, say Apple earnings this afternoon is one example, gives us a certain, as Ned Phelps of Columbia would say, dynamism. Does Europe have the dynamism to have a higher interest rate regime? Well, part of the problem that
6: they face is is all the conditions that you just laid out. But in addition, there's a demographic issue. Um, and there is a wage subsidy issue, which um, certainly adds to the whole concept of the whole uh discussion that we had been having for years about Europe. And I think Europe is aging rapidly, um, and they're finding a way not to, to keep their best educated people on the sidelines in a very
2: comfortable lifestyle. At least I want to note the euro craters here. <laughs> I, I, I mean, this is widely anticipated by uh, John Farrell. The euro cr- craters, as I would say on on, on radio, do a radio, to a one ten twenty one.
5: Yeah, to one twenty uh, yeah, exactly. Here, this is what I'm watching. Actually, it's exactly the chart that I have up. Not just because I'm waiting for it to break out of the one ten range, just but wait Steve to be
2: proven correct.
5: I'm curious. I don't know what correct would mean for me at this point, but I will. I am curious about whether Steve, you think people have overplayed the Europe strength? story, the ability to withstand both higher rates and consistent growth that was sort of the consensus heading into this meeting. And then all of a sudden they took the lesser of the two options with the ECB today. And then in the U.S., you see that the data is still strong. Does this underscore something that is important.
6: Well, I think there is that measure. And I think when you're looking at the oil numbers, I know people are talking about a fat finger mistake in terms of the decline in oil. But I think what you're seeing is globally around the world, you're not seeing the kind of resilience. You're not seeing it coming out of the Chinese opening. You're not seeing it coming out of Europe. And I think, yeah, there's a greater potential for Europe to run into resistance, especially I heard one of your commentators talking earlier today about the fact that Europe has a much closer connection in terms of its mortgage environment relative to the interest rate environment than we do in the United States because we have fixed rate mortgages. They have adjustable rate mortgages. And the net result is they have a bigger economic impact from what's going on.
5: Well, let's build on that because I was wondering whether their mortgage situation is akin to the regional banking situation in the U.S. You need the nodes of stress that are emerging are distinct depending on what kind of capital markets each region has. Do you think that the mortgage issue in Europe could become the new regional banking crisis in terms of people unable to pay uh, for their monthly bills? Yeah, without
6: getting into to the specifics of it, I think at this particular juncture, I think you're probably okay. And one of the reasons for it is because of the social safety net that's created in Europe. Uh, But I think in addition to that, you're in an environment where, you know, people in Europe are quicker to adjust their spending as a result of this. Um, So I think, you know, you're looking at at a potential downturn in the economy uh, relative to the strength everyone was looking for. Am I going to say it's going to be a deep or significant downturn? At this particular juncture, I can't make that call. But I do think it adds to the growth risk to the recession forecast as the regional bank problem adds to the recession forecast here. And if you look at all the data we've gotten out this week, you know, the, yeah, a lot of it's March data, some of it is April data, it's all strong. Even when you look at the claims number this morning, 242. Between, 250 and two, between 200 and 250, you're not in a recession. That's residual. You've right. got to get into that 250 to 3 area to start saying, okay, it's a really shallow recession. And then you keep on going up from there. And then you look at claim, continuing claims, they dropped again. So, you know, we don't have that labor market issue that I think a lot of people um, are concerned
2: about yet. If you're just joining us on radio and television, Stephen Rusciuto of Missoula with us. We could go for three hours with him with the experience of The American economy. Let's turn to America right now. I want you to dovetail in with your colleague Dominic Constum's idea of a Fed with monetary policy, but with other stuff, including the banking crisis becoming, as Constum states, super restrictive. How close are we to Rashudo super restrictive? You know, I mean, I think the Federal Reserve has a way
6: out of this that would be very, very simple. And I think one of the things that they should do immediately is end quantitative tightening. Uh, Part of the problem in the overall scenario for the outlook for the U.S. economy is the fact that the Federal Reserve is taking down its balance sheet. And the Fed seems to believe taking down its balance sheet will not lead dollar to dollar to taking down reserves. Mm -hmm. It is taking down reserves. And the net result is that's amplifying the problems. So the Federal Reserve, you know, this is the second time they've attempted to do both an interest rate increase and a quantitative tightening, and they've blown it both times.
2: Okay, but is this like a British austerity? Uh, The United Kingdom buried itself with some, you know, philosophical 20th century austerity a number of years ago. Do we have an austere Jerome Powell?
6: Well, I I think the Federal Reserve is overplaying its hand by using both quantitative tightening and interest rate policy at the same time. They should separate the two. They should use one at a time. And they should recognize that largely when you go into a quantitative easing standpoint, you do it and you assume it is permanent because you've done it because you're afraid of deflation. Okay? This concept that it's equivalent to an interest rate reduction is wrong. We're in a free reserve environment.
5: Building on that, just over in Europe, and we are about six minutes from the press conference with Christine Lagarde, who heads the ECB. Uh, one person saying, and I'm Maria Tadeo bringing us this, uh, that the most key. Uh, point for the press conference will be that they are ending reinvestment of the APP, basically uh, one of their main bond purchasing, asset purchasing programs. And this was sort of a nod to the Hawks to basically say, okay, we are going to get rid of this program more quickly, even though we're not going to raise rates by 50 basis points. What are you looking for in terms of what Christine Lagarde has to say about this?
6: Again, I think they're going to go down the same path that we've gone down. There is this misconception that what you put in, you can take out. When you're looking at the reserves in the system, the bank's balance sheet expands to the level of reserves that are provided. And it's harder to shrink the balance sheet than it is to expand the balance sheet. And this is why the Fed thinks, well, if we put it on automatic pilot, we let it run in the background, everything's fine. Okay, that's fine to some extent, but you're also raising interest rates. So the reality is separate the two. Leave them as separate policies, because they are distinctly separate policies, guided for very dis- distinctly different things. So I think what the Fed should do, and I think what the ECB should right. do, is leave one alone, do one, and then come back to the other. The ECB so far has only focused on one. The Fed was doing both at the same time. We've gotten into a problem with less taking out of the system right. now than we did in 2018 and 2019.
2: Don't be a stranger. Stephen Rusciuto with us from Missoula, just a terrific team between Steve Rusciuto and Dominic Constum. Joining us now, our reporter, Matthew Monks, after he moved markets and truly moved all of banking markets last night. Matthew, congratulations on your reporting. As simple as I can, in the April 25th statement by the leadership of PacWest, they say that credit – dynamics are steady. I found that really, really, really important. What are the credit metrics they have? Is it real estate on Rodeo Drive? What do they actually own away from the deposits?
7: Uh, they have a lot of commercial real estate. So that's like multifamily apartment loans. They have a lot of business uh, loans, like so revolving credit lines to businesses. Uh, they have a venture capital lending business. The important thing to understand here, this is not a credit quality issue. Uh, not yet, at least. It's, it's 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 an interest rate issue, which uh, means that these loans um, are no longer, you know, worth what they were when they wrote them. Uh, they you know, their market value is uh, below par. But you know, they're, they're they're assuming that they all get paid back. You know, they will be worth whole eventually. But it's really about right. the interest rate and the credit quality is is it's holding steady, um, which is different than the last crisis.
3: So Matt, let's talk about these strategic options. Go through them one by one. What is on the table here, and where you think the priority lies. For leadership at this bank?
7: So uh, the ideal solution here would be uh, some kind of uh, uh, rescue merger with another larger institution. It's a a great franchise in California. There's a lot of people that'd be interested in expanding California. But the issue, like I said, it it goes back to this kind of interest rate risk in those loans. Since they're not worth what they uh, used to be, any potential buyer is going to have to take a substantial hit uh, right out the gate, uh, marking down those loans, which would create a lost. So it makes it really, really hard for someone to buy them. So obviously that would be the first priority for them is to find a merger partner, but just getting someone to take that well, hit would be an issue.
5: Bet, we just saw the playbook with this, right? I mean, we just saw yeah, the idea right. that basically you just wait for the uh, for the FDIC to come in and yeah. give you some sort of loan loss uh, agreement. And then all of a sudden it's a feasible purchase. Why is this not just going to end up in the same place?
7: Uh, I don't know yet. If you, if you can... uh I don't know. I'm trying to get my head wrapped around it as well. Now, there is one possible reason. Uh, Now, this is a much smaller institution than First Republic. It's much smaller than Silicon Valley Bank. So potentially, you know, a bank could kind of step up and and eat a loss uh, and make it worth their while. But it's kind of hard to argue with, um, you know, getting a sweetheart deal from the FDIC, I guess. But it's all still to be determined.
5: Matt, I don't want you to uh, tip your hand, but I know that you speak with a lot of people in the world of deal-making. How much chatter is there about additional M&A, about additional kinds of tie-ups in the banking sector, perhaps under less distressed kinds of circumstances to get ahead of this type of thing?
7: I think everything's dead right now for for the reason that I mentioned. I think long-term, you're going to see a lot of consolidation, but right now everything is just kind of off the table, especially when you see that TD deal unraveling this morning. If you're a large institution... How are you going to take that, that, that risk that it's going to get shot down? These deals take nine months close to begin with. Now you're going to do a deal and it's just going to be open-ended. So, no, no, I mean, I hate to say it, but unless it's kind of forced or distressed, Bank MA right now is dead.
2: I mean, I don't want you to play sell-side analyst here. That's not the Bloomberg way, Matthew Monks. But no. in your reporting, even if you have deposit stability from $35 yeah. billion down to $28 billion, is the other side of the ledger so diminished, mark to market, that they're at a net capital negative right now? I mean, is PAC West sitting no, I don't so. zero capital?
7: No, I don't think so. I don't okay. think they're insolvent. And, and everybody that I was talking to last night, you know, wasn't indicating that they're solvent. I mean, it's 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 about investors in shorts selling down these banks and just being merciless. Uh, all the institutional investors have fled. You're not really seeing bargain investors kind of get into the stock. It's really, it's just, it's just investor sentiment that's just hammering these banks. I mean, the the, the three larger banks that failed before these were really incredibly problematic banks with the hundred billion of, of of troubled assets sitting on their balance sheets. It's, it's not the case here. This is really, it's actually, it's actually, it's actually a really nice franchise in pretty decent shape. It's just getting pummeled pummeled by investors.
3: Matt, the deposit profile is so different. Compared to That's SVB, and we can put some numbers on that with ease. We did that a little bit earlier. From a reporter's perspective, for you, are you focused on that? Are we focused on the right thing when we sit here and say deposits have stabilized, which is something the bank yeah, itself I'm, wants I'm to communicate? Yeah,
7: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going back to the point that they, so they, I think 80 percent or so of, the, of their deposits are insured. Uh, that 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 liquidity is not just going to run off um, in, in a heartbeat. Um, um, and, and these, you know, and these are these are insured kind of retail and commercial deposits, uh, I don't think that we're seeing a run on them. So, yeah, I'm absolutely focused on that. And that's why I keep putting this message out here that it's, it's a different situation than some of these other uh, uh, institutions.
5: One of the listeners of the program had an amazing question, which is essentially what is what you're saying, that the Fed has to cut rates to get bank con- yeah. consolidation to take place. Is that kind of what people are waiting for, that opportunity for perhaps a balance sheet that makes a little bit more sense?
7: Yeah, well, I mean, people are waiting for uh, uh, maybe the government to to raise the deposit the insurance cap. That's one thing that could kind of just stabilize things and then maybe create stability for M&A. Uh, uh, Federal Reserve, you know, slowing its role when it comes to interest rates. Yeah, at this point, uh, the private market is definitely waiting for some kind of guidance from the government to stabilize things uh, to, you know, foster uh, consolidation one way or the other.
3: Hey Matt, wonderful to catch up with you, sir. Tremendous reporting, Matt. Let's talk again soon Thank you, sir. before the week is out. Thank you, sir. Matthew Muncks there on the latest story with Pack West. Joining us around the table right now, Whaley, global chief investment strategist at BlackRock. Waley, let's talk about what Tom's discussing and, and build on it. We've had the rate shock. Are you looking for some kind of credit shock to follow?
8: We are expecting a version of credit tightening and crunch to come through to do some of the output destruction work for the Fed, which is why we have now entered the uh, beginning of the pause phase. Uh, They signaled pause yesterday. We're expecting um, we are getting close to peak, if not at peak. But more importantly from the meeting yesterday is that they continue to consistently reiterate no cuts for this year. And markets are pricing in three cuts for this year. And that disconnect is going to be a source of uh, further market volatility.
2: If I look at three months, 10 spread out to 193 basis points, I can state I've never seen it in a textbook. I've never thought about it. I've never it was Back 30 years, it's a three standard deviation move. Totally unprecedented. In your note, you talk about short-term government paper. What will short-term government paper do when in some form, the three-month, 10-year differential cracks?
8: Well, we expect a short-term government paper to give you income, which we haven't had in fixed income for a very, very long time. And that is notwithstanding the debt ceiling uncertainty, and that is notwithstanding this Dispersion, this huge, huge kind of discrepancy in terms of yields that you get in three months versus ten year. If you hold it out for uh, maturity, some of that uncertainty uh, also kind of uh, washes uh, washes away. The curve is extremely uh, inverted. Uh, it's so inverted uh, that uh, we think uh, the 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 next move is for a uh, ten year yields to, to 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 come back up and 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 curve to steepen from these extremely inverted uh, inverted levels, uh, which is why we long the front end, but uh, we are less constructive on the long end of the curve.
5: Wait, did Jay Powell give you confidence that they had under
8: control a sense of how deep some of the banking fissures go? Can he give anyone confidence at this uh, this juncture, seeing that it's still early days? One thing I would say, though, in terms of uh, what's uh, playing out in the banking sector is that uh, we don't think this is a banking-specific systemic type of crisis, we think that this is just another expression of financial cracks appearing in response to the fastest rate hike cycle since the 80s. Arguably, what happened in um, the UK last September with the LDI uh, uh, yield spike uh, volatility episode was another expression of these financial cracks appearing. We know that as we fight inflation, in a world shaped by supply, uh, cost of fight inflation is higher, and cracks would appear, and it would carry economic uh, cost, and that's starting to come.
5: What's the next progression in this cascade of cracks that you see, and is the only policy (sighs) response that can
8: really address this, rate cuts? or provision of liquidity. Um, they have been very swift uh, with that to uh, start with, but now the boundary is getting blurred a little bit through the transmission channel of credit tightening. So which is why we are, we think that we're basically at a peak uh, rate unless inflation surprises on the upside because of this huge uncertainty in terms of how big the credit crunch uh, is uh, is likely going to be. And it's still early days to quantify precisely.
3: Can we turn to Tom's big focus at the moment? We thought we'd all be bailed out on the growth side by China's reopening. We've had a couple of signals, the manufacturing PMI in the last week, some company earnings indicate that maybe the reopening and this boom we might get this year is a little bit of a head fake. Where do you come down on that now?
8: While the Chinese uh, restart, the reopening has been uh, is likely going to be very domestic focused. You see, consumers spending more and travels during the past uh, bank holiday week has been uh, very strong. So consumer is going to be, play a big role in this uh, in this restart, which potentially limits uh, mm-hmm. the magnitude to which actually you can come to the rescue of the value market uh, economy and the recession uh, foretold. We're still uh, of the view mm-hmm. that. Chinese growth can clock above 6% for this year, but uh, we're also still of the view that uh, in the US we're likely uh, heading into recession second half of the year, especially as consumers start to kind of uh, run down on their savings buffer and their spending appetite is starting to stall.
2: You're one of the most important Chinese voices in the Western world right now with BlackRock, with your prodigious abilities in mathematics. And the zeitgeist I see among corporate officers is to expand off the Pacific Rim west in China, to not be in two cities or three cities, including Beijing, but to move into five, six, seven cities. John mentioned LVMH the other day is an example of this. Do you perceive that there can be a three-year, five-year, ten-year expansion by Western companies into other China cities, or are we always wedded to Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Beijing?
8: I think when it comes to managing geopolitical risk and diversifying geopolitical uh, risks, uh, I, I, I think it's really uh, important to recognize that the word today is more intertwined. It's more intertwined uh, and the trade linkages are stronger as well. So no longer can we just fade geopolitical uh, risk premium. We have to kind of think about persistent risk premium as we construct uh, portfolios. And when it comes to China risks and, and Spreading that out, both for investors and corporations, I think that is a certain direction of travel, certainly.
3: Wei Li, this was wonderful. It's good to see you. It always is, here in New York City. Wei Li of of Road. thank you very much.
8: Nobody
0: ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs, and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
2: Let's switch to Apple here. A oh, 28% per year return over the last uh, 10 years is different than the banks. Thomas Forte knows us. He's senior research analyst. D.A. Davidson's on this afternoon's festivities. Tom, I know there's lots of strategic ideas out there as well. I went back on the Bloomberg. Folks, the F.A. screen on the Bloomberg is just absolutely stunning. And the shares taken in, they're Intel-like, except Apple was minting money on, like, 15 years ago when Intel was. And the share buybacks over the last number of years have been absolutely extraordinary. Are they going to drop a bombshell today on use of cash, on dividend, and further new share buybacks?
9: I think it's going to be a reminder that Apple generates a ton of free cash flow. And if you're not going to buy the stock and Warren Buffett's not going to buy the stock, Apple's going to buy the stock. So I expect another increase in their share repurchase plan uh, when you couple that with their dividend, though the dividend yield is still quite modest, uh, they're returning a lot of that free cash flow they generate back to shareholders. And I think that's contributing to the strong performance for the stock.
2: What's your glide path on revenue? I know they had a couple years ago a big pandemic boom. My, everybody had to buy a computer at home. Maybe they were giving them out at First Republic Bank. But what is the single-digit revenue glide path of Apple forward?
9: So if you think about Apple on a near-term basis, they should benefit from the reopening of China, the end of the Chinese government COVID zero policy to the extent that 10% of their sales are to Chinese consumers. Uh, They have seen some softness in some of their economically sensitive revenue, including advertising. Think of it as advertising for app downloads, especially in mobile gaming. Uh, But there's reason to expect that uh, as the economy improves, and on the strength, continued strength of the iPhone on the 5G uh, network upgrade, that Apple may be able to sustain double-digit top-line growth. The good news is that there's easing of a very significant headwind in FX uh, to the extent that the dollar weakened materially versus the pound, the euro, and the Japanese yen in the March quarter versus the December quarter. So there's reasonably optimistic that revenue growth can improve going from here.
5: Tom, we've written some stories uh, that talk about the stealth move away from China, away from production in China and away from just in general, how big the Apple footprint is there. Are you expecting to hear anything about costs incurred on that transition away from the second largest economy in the world?
9: Uh, The answer is yes. And Tim Cook is an amazing uh, CEO. I refer to him as CEO by day and diplomat by night. But he has a challenge here to the extent that he has to... uh, broaden his supply chain and move out of China to to some degree. Uh, The good news is that as he expands into India, he kind of has the footprint of what he did in China, or sorry, the game plan of what he did in China, and mirror that for India. But yes, I think they have to more than stealthily uh, diversify their supply chain so they're less dependent on China, and I think that's going to be a challenge.
5: Especially at a time when companies seem to be rewarded for saying chat GPT or artificial intelligence, and it's very difficult to talk about these high, uh, highfalutin ideas when it's just nuts and bolts moving things around the world and trying to put things together. Is there anything in the latest hot trend that Apple can hang on to for future growth, or are they kind of tied to an old economy kind of reality that's very much tied in the physical world?
9: Yeah, so Tim Cook last quarter talked about AI as being a... Horizontal technology, not a vertical one. So when you think about Apple and AI, they're using AI on many levels. I think of Siri as an example, and I think that what you're going to see is that uh, I'm of the belief that longer term they could totally create a car uh, versus just having kind of the consumer-facing operating system in the car with CarPlay. That would be leveraging a lot of our artificial intelligence. Uh, depending on your view of, you know, the metaverse and augmented reality and virtual reality, there's opportunities there as well. I think Apple is quietly using artificial intelligence on many levels. Uh, Microsoft's better at PR. Apple, I would argue, is better
3: at technology. <laughs> Tom, that comment at the end there, <laughs> so that is cool. not the first time I've heard that. Are you suggesting, pretty obviously, that you think that the company that we're all looking at for some kind of AI revolution is just the one that's doing a better PR <laughs> job right now?
9: I, I absolutely feel that way, although it is hard to debate who's better at PR, uh, Apple versus anybody. I mean, Apple's amazing at PR. Yeah. But yes, I love the belief that uh, when it comes to AI, when you compare uh, Microsoft and Apple and Google, uh, Microsoft's doing the best job in PR.
2: Uh, I didn't think we were going to have this conversation. That's brilliant, John. Thanks for bringing that up. Tom Forte, what's the glide path on the chip? I always go back to the A series of chips. Is there room for improvement to ever more amaze us with their chip development over the next two or three iterations?
9: The answer is yes. The beauty of Apple is the next device is always the fastest and the best. And I think that when you saw them take some of their chip production and chip design in-house, uh, that enabled yep. them again, going back to PR to, to promote how this product's better and to get us upgrade. So, yes, I think the glide path is a, a good one there.
3: Hey, Tom, great to catch up. Thank you, sir. Tom Fordy, there of DA Davidson.
2: Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keane, and this is Bloomberg.